You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 138. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. I've got a new podcast uh, set up today, but... Uh, uh, same old, uh, same old co-host here. We're going to welcome Aaron to the show. Aaron, how you doing? I'm do- I'm doing well. You know, it's, yeah, good. It's, uh, it's it's officially autumn now. We've made it out of the summer, so that feels like it caught me off guard. But uh, yeah, things are good. Oh, I mean that's that's nice. I'm just I'm trying to make it through the year. I feel like, and I know that people are like, it's not like the year changes and the problems <laughs> don't follow us, but. Um, I need a I need a cutoff point. I mean, you, I guess we have. You can't accomplish uh, large goals without setting small benchmarks along the way. So I guess we have the the Jewish New Year right now. So that's sort of right one tick, and then I I feel like this is now the time when I'm like these are the changes I want to make, and then the um, the real the the I don't want to say the real the real New Year the 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 the, 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 the secular New Year the secular New Year is the is the time when I'm like okay this is um you know this is when it should start that's that's not a bad off. model gives you yeah. keeps you from getting caught off guard on uh, on New Year's Eve saying shoot what what's my resolution what what am I going to do with myself no no yeah yeah you have to you have to prepare it you have to prepare it for sure. Uh, <laughs> so, okay. So last week I did my first ever call in show and I was surprised. I was not sure how that was going to go. I thought people were going to be like, well, what is this? This is kind of weird jumping from topic to topic. I actually got a few emails on that. People, people liked it. So maybe we should do more call in shows. Yeah. I thought it went well. Yeah. Uh, you know, we talked about all sorts of things. The, the election we talked about, um, uh, Bayes applied to COVID, and I think we'll apply Bayes to one of our topics today. We're doing science topics today. We're talking about, uh, you know, we're talking about cosmology. We're talking about biology. We're talking about genealogy. So this is a little bit outside our wheelhouse, a little bit, but we have we have our toolkit. Yeah, a little um, bit of pop sci. Yeah, yeah. All right. So actually, so why don't we just get into it? I mean, the first one I wanted to talk about was a an article I have linked here to the New York Post. I so you can always link to various different sources, and the New York Post is always an intre- is always one that um, might be controversial, but they tend to <laughs> take science topics like this and make it like a short article that appears interesting. But this is about whether there is life outside of planet Earth, and I that's always been a topic of great interest to me. I feel like it's it's something that a lot of people are interested in. Some people probably don't care. Some people are probably like, well, what does this have to do with my life? Uh, I, where do you stand on that? Uh, I mean, I can see both sides of it. Uh, I think it would be undeniably cool. Um, it, it would be kind of a, a mind-blowing thing if, if we were a- actually able to confirm that. Uh, but the flip side is, it, at least in the forms that we're, we're discussing today, uh, in in the or the instigating story, uh, it's it's not like all of a sudden my my world would be changed uh, in sure. terms of the day to day. This is sure. this is a, a, a far shot from you know little green men landing on the White House lawn saying "Take me to your leader." Yeah, yeah. No, but, you know, I feel like this is one of the slow moving areas of science where we've actually seen quite a bit of progress in our lifetime. 
where it's not, I feel like physics when they're trying to make the unified theory. I mean, there's been some stuff, but it's, but they've almost kind of seemed to have hit a brick wall there in many ways. I, I'm sure the mm. brick wall will be, will, will, uh, will dissipate at some point, but it seems like we're learning a lot about our galaxy, our universe, our solar system, and we're learning about it fast. Like every few years, there's something else. And today, uh, you know, it was always assumed if there's life on this, in this solar system outside of Earth, it's got to be in, in Mars where, you know, it's, it's much colder than Earth, but it has an atmosphere. Yeah, and I mean, there's, there's some been a lot of talk about Mars in that context right. in the last 10, 15 years. Right. And, and the moons of Jupiter where, you know, there's, there's oceans underneath ice where it's like, okay, we could see life there. And there has not been a lot of focus on Venus. And the reason has been because it is hot. It is dense. I mean, the, that, that planet is, if you think Mars is, is trying to kill you, if you go there, Venus is a thousand times worse. Like it, that atmosphere will crush you, and it is toxic gas. Yeah, well, and, yeah uh, I was going to say, it's, it's, it's not just toxic. It's like sulfuric acid or something. It's, uh, so how is that worse? Is uh, that- I mean, you wouldn't want to breathe it, but I think even if you didn't breathe it, it would probably corrode through whatever. You, you need a special suit, not just to, oh, keep, gotcha. to separate you from the outside, but to keep it from eating away at you. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so uh, Venus is definitely not somewhere you want to go. And some scientists have, and I believe this, uh, where, where were the scientists? I have to look. Here's the paper in, in Nature, uh, Nature Astronomy uh, magazine. But I, I, I want to know, like, I, I did not look up what university is. But this is what they're talking about. They found uh, evidence of phosphine on Venus. Not like, you know, tons of it, but um, enough where it's like, we don't know a way to produce that amount of phosphine in an uh, inorganic way, you know, without uh, microbial life. So, yeah, well, and and I I don't remember what the source was that I read this, but uh, I, I think they said that they were they were kind of using this as an excuse to calibrate one of their instruments. They pointed it at Venus to look for this, and they were expecting that we're going to see barely trace, if any, uh, uh, recognition of this particular compound, and and then they found it in not just detectable, but you know significant beyond background that that it, it can't just be a measurement error levels so right and uh, it was yeah, almost I, an accidental discovery well a lot of these are and that's pretty cool i mean uh, I, you know people have made the point well it's on jupiter but you kind of expect it on jupiter because the gas giants are a little different i mean it's the pressure and the whatever so i don't understand all the chemistry but apparently this is something that uh, they don't have and so we have a bunch of uh points here. Why don't, we're going to do some Bayesian probabilities on all of these points that we have. So uh, we wrote down here three possible explanations, right? And one is it's not actually phosphine. We've detected it in error, uh, which, I, you know, it's not like you could actually see the phosphine. It's, you know, they're, they're detecting, I believe, you know, spectral uh, evidence of it, so it's like, yeah, well, it's, and, and that's that's how most uh, most astronomy work is done. Is yeah. it's very hard to directly observe anything. That I mean, imagine even when, know, we're, we're, when we're when yeah, we're when we're discovering planets, it's often well, we can't see the planet, but we can see that the light from the star is being affected in a way that indicates there's probably a planet there. So, uh, this I mean, is, one of the most mind blowing one of the most mind blowing discoveries is that you could actually tell what these foreign bodies are made out of. Uh, for just from astronomy, just from data, which is pretty 
Um, people don't think about this that much, but if, yeah, if you it, like told someone 100 years ago, it's, yeah, if you told someone 100 cool years field. ago, that would be possible. That would be uh, uh, really mind-blowing. So one is it's an error. Two is it's the result of a biological process. And three, it's the result of an inorganic process, uh, chemical or geological, previously unknown. So we're not going to be very good at putting probabilities on this ourselves because we're not really in the field. But... Um, I don't even know. Do we, do we even want to try? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll just throw out, uh, not, not putting a number on it, but kind of some context for that paper in Nature. Yeah. Uh, so they're, they're putting a, a pretty high uh, probability on, on category number two is that it's the result of some sort of biological process, mm. not because they have a compelling argument for why it is that, but more that uh, they've, they've looked real hard at number three, the could there possibly be some sort of inorganic process that would result in what we're observing? And they've exhausted all of their, the, the, the ways they can think of it. And so they, they kind of publish this paper in the context of, we can't come up with an explanation other than biological life. If you can, please, please tell us and, and throwing that out to the scientific community. Yeah. Well, right. I, I feel like at this point I would be more, inclined to accept the the um what 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 principles the Cromwell principle like don't don't put anything at close to zero percent on this i think all three are very possible but the fact that they're putting this out to the scientific community you're going to see uh lots of alternative explanations come forward and none come forward over uh, a period of time then that result being a biological process um becomes higher and higher and the implications of that are uh, well, we'll talk about the implications of that, but that that would be pretty uh, far flung implications. Um, yeah, well, and and I think this this could be a huge motivator for uh, either increasing uh, investment in in exploration of our near planets, or or perhaps maybe diverting some of the resources from uh, Martian exploration, which certainly not the prime motivator, but one of the motivators has been we we think there might be trace signs of life there to go explore that that. Uh, if if we think there might be a payoff of a similar magnitude uh, on Venus, that that maybe we should start sending uh, robotic missions uh, there as well. So that, yeah. that could be very cool. I mean, it's I feel like it's a lot harder. Like you said, it corrodes the. You know, it, we can we have vehicles uh, driving around on Mars. We're not going to have vehicles. Well, can we have vehicles driving around on Venus? I don't even. I think maybe we well, do have something, but it's so so. So there would be two things on that front. Yeah. Uh, I I don't know when the last probe was sent to Venus, uh, but, but they have sent probes and, and it is very much, uh, I believe one of those scenarios that you can send it in, but it will eventually, uh, you know, kind of burn up in the atmosphere, not, not just because of, of friction, like, uh, like when we deorbit satellites, but because of the corrosive nature and, and the harsh environment. Uh, however, uh, if we step back to Mars for a minute, uh, there is a mission that is en route to Mars right now, which has uh, a small helicopter as part of it, which will be the first time that we've tested uh, flying essentially an aircraft. Uh, oh, that'd be freaking awesome! On on, a, on another like planet, a, yeah, like and, a drone if, on Mars. And if they can learn f- some lessons from that, we may be able to extrapolate to having some sort of of atmospheric craft for uh, for Venus. Which uh, it, it also sounds like the so that might be more... signs of life are not on yeah. the surface of Venus. The sure. surface of Venus being close to to nine hundred degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, that they suspect if, if there is this this sort of biological process occurring that it's it's up at like 50 60 kilometers into the atmosphere um, where it's where it's more between 
uh, you know, room temperature and boiling water. Uh, so, so that's that's Venus cold. Yeah. <laughs> so, so if if we were looking to explore the origins of this particular phenomenon, uh, we we wouldn't want to be going down to the surface anyway. So, certainly not an easy challenge, but. Uh, I, I would put money on the folks at JPL being able to come up with a way to do it. So you're, when it talks about, uh, is there anything in your area of expertise where you would know something about designing aircraft on other planets? Because I know you know something about designing aircraft, but... I, not not I really. Um, okay. And, and that's uh, actually, so there, there is a related metaculous question about the, uh, the Martian helicopter. Um, and, and folks are pretty bullish about it in general. However... Uh, I mean, it, it there there is a a significant non-zero chance that it fails completely because we we're very limited in ways we can test for how on, on how Mars or Venus behave for for Mars. Wow. Okay. So you uh, might they, so you they've done might... some testing, but it's you know you you can maybe test in vacuum, but it's not exactly vacuum. And how do you test in reduced gravity? And it's they they've they've tried to do some proxies, but there's. There's serious limitations on on how much they can prove it out beyond actually going and doing it. So okay, um, yes, I, I you do know something in a while. Than but the average I think, person, <laughs> I think they were putting the odds at something like mid sixty percent for success of of the uh, the Martian helicopter. Now that that may have been partially mitigated by uh, the caveat, and 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 you know you you could do a Bayesian breakdown on this in order to get to the point where you launch and try and fly. The, the aircraft off of the rover, you got to get there. So you got to build in all the chances of failure of the mission up to that point as well. Mm. Mm. Well, it looks like there's a good, do you know when that, uh, do you know, what is the name of that mission? Uh, that is an excellent question. I oh my God. I'm sorry my about fingertips, but I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to try to look at it. I'm sorry about these, these, uh, notifications. I can't turn them off. New computer. <laughs> um, here it is. First interplanetary helicopter on its way to Mars. NASA's Ingenuity of Mars helicopter launched with the Perseverance rover on, so it launched on July 30th, uh, scheduled to land in February of next year. So we'll maybe revisit that in February. So that will be uh, that'll be fun. Um, oh my God, this URL is so crazy. Lots of percent twenties. Uh, <laughs> but uh, hey, that's what we're talking about. So I'm glad that we're talking about things that are happening outside the planet today because the planet is so messed up. So <laughs> we're uh, we're uh, we're talking oh, here, about the right here, thing. here we go. I, I found the metaculous question. Yeah, uh, and and the community prediction is at eighty percent chance of success, and and apparently. Uh, I put it at 85, but uh, for our listeners, uh, that that uh, that question is closed, so it's too late to get in a a, a forecast now. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so um, right, so let's talk about why it would be a big deal if we found life on Venus. Well, first of all, finding life outside of Earth would be a big deal, but. Uh, let's say we found it on Venus instead of Mars. I feel like there's an extra big deal in that because the conditions are so harsh. Or, I mean, harsh maybe is not the right word because that's just harsh relative to us, right? I mean, you know, if you're a Venusian, then Earth might look pretty harsh. <laughs> but um, it's so different that it means that um, the ability for life to survive in different environments, the intelligence of it, 
is uh, is way higher than we could have imagined. Well, yeah, we we have uh, a a handicap in this kind of analysis because uh, we are aware of a single case where we found life, and so. Uh, it's it's unclear whether that means that life can only exist in a very narrow set of circumstances, which which uh, right. But we keep earth finding within, or if we're just one of many cases. Right. We keep finding life on Earth in more and more extreme uh, environments on Earth. You know, yeah, like, that was that was the other piece that I was gonna gonna comment on that. Right. That, uh, I, I know we've said that these conditions on on Venus are are fairly extreme, um, and and I. I don't know if we mentioned, but it sounds like it's yeah, it's, it's an abiotic uh, process, um, most likely. So, uh, or yeah, so so Wait, it's it's, it's abiotic. Not, uh, sorry, uh, what I want to say is it's it's not it's not necessarily oxygen based, right? Um, okay. So, so uh, there there are uh, organisms on on the planet Earth that that have non oxygen based cycles. There there are some some microbes and bacteria that live in like undersea volcano vents where pretty extreme conditions, both in terms of pressure and temperature. But I, I don't know off the top of my head how that compares to the conditions on Venus. So whether this would be, uh, you know, a, a, like an order of magnitude difference, or if this is in that same band, but, but we are questioning whether life could kind of originate there or, if, or if it has to originate in a much more moderate condition and then it can kind of adapt into the more extremes. So there's a lot of unknowns there. It's it's hard to generalize from a case of one. Right, right. Um, yeah, so, and I guess the, the point I want to make, the, the, the way I'm thinking about it is, okay, we see life in more and more extreme uh, conditions on Earth. Is it going to come to a point where it's like, uh, well, you could get to this extreme, but no more extreme than this, because, uh, you know, uh, will we at some point find the limit, or we at some point say... Oh no! It's actually uh, we're we're actually going to keep finding life in more and more extreme environments. I mean, look, I, there are places on Earth. Well, I don't know what is the status of life in, like, say, uh, Antarctica. Is that all? Um, is the snowy surface of that all lifeless? I probably not. Right? I, I I'm well, a little cer- bit outside. Certainly not. Yeah. Um, although it is, I know they've done. Uh, they they work hard to keep from from quote unquote contaminating it with uh, too much outside influence, uh, but but even even if humans hadn't uh, made their ways their way to Antarctica, uh, I mean there there are penguins there. Uh, well, sure. There's... I'm talking about though, kind of like a microbial life. Yeah, I, there there must be. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I got to be everywhere. Um, okay. So yeah, it's, sorry, it's the, like, the word I was looking for wasn't abiotic; it was anaerobic. Anaerobic, so, uh, okay, like a, like aerobics working out. You're uh, yes, so you're, so anaerobic you're breathing is, in oxygen and is the non-oxygen phase. Of that. <laughs> okay, okay, uh, makes you look at aerobics a whole new, a whole new way. <laughs> All right, so uh, let, let's also talk about like what that means in terms of life in in the galaxy in general or life nearby. So, uh, first of all, one thing that we could find is that. Life is just so extremely rare, and it turns out that every time we find evidence on Mars and Venus and all these places, it turns out to be a false alarm, which is possible. That's still a possibility there. And so if, if it turns out that these are all false alarms, as soon as uh, uh, um, the more and more we, uh, we, we find that to be the case, the more it looks like, wow, life is very rare, in which case it might not be very common 
um, you know, in, in our galaxy, even if life exists elsewhere in the universe, you'd have to travel really far and it would be unlikely to get them. Now, it could also be that life is very rare, uh, but it exists in many places in the solar system because of the panspermia hypothesis. That is a strange one, uh, but that one says that, okay, life is extremely, extremely rare, but it originated one place in the solar system and somehow could travel from planet to planet to moon to asteroid within the solar system. I kind of find that hard to believe, but that has not been uh, falsified, has it? Yeah, I mean, there's it's 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 tough to disprove, um, but there's been a, a lot of discussion of that, um, in particular in the context of our explorations of Mars, um, right. with the concern: well, if we find signs of life on Mars, does that mean that life actually originated there, or is it just that uh, there that somehow life from Earth? Uh, managed to make its way to Mars, uh, you know, in, in the form of uh, comets or, or some sort of ejecta. Um, we know that there, or we, like we believe a volcano. that the, the moon was, uh, you know, basically split off from Earth uh, during a large collision. And so who's to say that, that when, when all that material was, uh, was, was so basically, broken off, that some of it couldn't have ended up going into an orbit that eventually took it uh, right. to, to Mars. So it's got to so, be something like a very simple life-bearing molecule. Right. We're, uh, yeah, we're not talking but, about like gremlins hitching a ride. Yeah, or like um, I, I was thinking but, of but, like chim- bacteria uh, levels. I was thinking of uh, chipmunks building a little rocket ship, maybe about three <laughs> feet tall and like, you know, getting in the beavers. As, as adorable as that might be, that, that seems highly unlikely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, I don't know about that one. I would have to look into that. Yeah. And, then, well, and, and, and the other thought there is that even if, if – it makes it very di- if if you give some credence to this this uh, hypothesis, it makes it difficult to determine the directionality of that as well. That who are we to say that there wasn't at one time life on Mars, and that's where the life on Earth came from? Right, we're all um, Martians. That, um, that yeah, the bac- bacteria on there has 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 since died out, but that was the source for the seeding of Earth. Right. All right. So let's the third the third hypothesis here, which is. Um, the, the craziest one is, let's suppose that we discover, we, I don't know how, if this will, can be depro- proved definitively, but let's say we have independent creation of life on both Earth and Venus, or even on both Earth and Mars, um, and we discover that uh, it's very likely to have been created independently. That is a very, the implications of that are hard to... Uh, are, it's hard to um, overstate the implications of that because if life was started independently in two different places in the solar system, that means it is unimaginably abundant in our galaxy. Like, oh, it's like Star Trek. You go to almost well, every star the, and there'll the, be something. The some... possible counter to that would be, yeah. and, and I, I think you can poke holes in this pretty easily, yeah. but what, what about the possibility that, okay, yeah, so life can can fairly easily spawn in our solar system, but there's something special about our solar system that makes it unique among all the stars. But like what? I mean, well, could be, and yeah, I I guess much, much of our, our search for life in the galaxy has been based around looking for earth like planets, which I I think uh, a fundamental starting point for that is looking for sun or for, for soul like stars as well. We found Uh, both. uh, Yeah. So, so, I guess the question is how narrowly do you define the the 
the the the band of properties around the special case that is uh, our solar system to distinguish it from others. That uh, I, I I think. I think that constraint kind of quickly falls apart that, that yeah, if there's, I would find it much harder to believe that there's something uniquely special about our solar system that, that makes it impossible for life to have occurred in around other stars. Yeah. I, I still think scenario. it's possible that we won the, 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 the life lottery, you know, like it's just life is very uncommon and yeah. somehow, somehow we won the lottery. Uh, but um, uh, yeah. So Yes, if it's shown that, that life can be independently created, then we have, you know, we know there are a lot of planets. We know there are a lot of Earth-like planets, uh, sun-like stars. So it's, um, it's, uh, that's almost crazy to think about. Um, so, okay, three possibilities. Let's, let's see what we can say about subjective probabilities on those. I'm not saying Bayesian. I'll say subjective because <laughs> I don't know how this would update it, but certainly it would mean uh, independent creation, I think, goes up. Uh, well, now, so 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 just setting some baseline yeah. rules. Uh, it, we're we're talking about these three three possibilities. Uh, presumably, they have to sum up to uh, less than or equal to a hundred percent. Right. So the one is no life elsewhere in the solar system. Two is uh, life on solar system with a single origin caused by panspermia, and um, three is independent creation of life on various planets or you know, moons count, like uh, bodies uh, in the solar system. So right now, I mean, I, I feel like, I mean, can this get answered in our lifetime? I don't know. I feel like only, uh, the only one that could be falsified in our lifetime is the no life elsewhere. Um, that could be. Yeah, and, and even that is 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 a challenge. Uh, yeah. Because, you know, it's. We're, we're working hard to try and answer that question on Mars, and that's one of the easier ones to address. Oh, the, the, that, that was the other thing I wanted to throw out there about the Mars versus Venus question is uh, I'm not familiar enough with the orbital mechanics, um, but I, I know a big challenge for Mars is that it takes you know somewhere between uh, like 18 months and three years to, to do a trip to Mars depending on where you are yeah. in, in our, our orbit cycles. I don't know if a, a mission to Venus uh, – would would be uh, I believe more shorter. convenient from that perspective. I, I mean, think so. Yeah, I, I I think they may be closer, but uh, there's there's more complexity to the, that question than than just how close the orbits are. I mean, but, but anyway, I, I was yeah. under the impression that they're way closer, and and also the planets are way closer in size. Although that doesn't help when you have a planet, you know, <laughs> engulfed in <laughs> flaming sulfur or whatever. <laughs> the worst possible. Um, okay, so. Yeah, no, I think with this with this discovery, the Bayesian posterior for independent creation of life has ticked up. I don't know exactly where it is, but it looks like the discoveries over the last 20 years has caused, if there were a betting market, would cause the, um, the, the probability for independent creation of life to tick upward and upward. Now, that doesn't mean that it's, you know, sometimes you have discoveries going in one direction and then all of a sudden it all gets overturned. But that appears to be the, uh, the direction that we're going in here, which, um, which is uh, exciting, I don't know, terrifying. Yeah, well, and, and part of it is, is kind of the difficulty of proving the null hypothesis here, that, that the more information we gather, um, the more opportunities we have for finding uh, promising uh, data. Sure. Uh, whereas when we find when we when we continue to make observations that don't suggest the presence of life, uh, that that doesn't really 
push the the probability down so much as it continues to keep us kind of at our steady state level. That's that's already been kind of baked into our our predictions at that point, I, I would say. Yeah. So I don't know what my my subjective probability on, on independent creation is, but maybe, I don't know, I'd put it at, I probably would not put it at 50%. I might put it at a bit lower, uh, 20%. But I'm just pulling that number out of nowhere. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the one I most want to be true. I guess but, so. But yeah. I, I mean, it's I, like I, I feel like I want it, but then I'm like, do I really want it? I don't know. <laughs> right. So if there's life everywhere, then there's this concept of the great filter, which I have to, I have to mention because it's always, it's always uh, a good discussion to have at like one, two in the morning, which is like, well, we're all, if, if life is everywhere, where are all these uh, intelligent um, civilizations that uh, we can see? Yeah. Well, so, so yeah, the, the, the great filter is really just a, uh, a building, uh, a a extrapolation off of the the Drake equation, right? Right, and the, the Drake equation is the one that's like, what's the probability of an intelligent um, of of an intelligent species uh, in a, on another planet? And like one of them, when when he made it, was like, well, what percentage of stars have planets? And for all they knew at the time, it could be like you know one out of a million. Well, now we know it's uh, you know almost all of them. So that changes over time quite a bit. Yeah. Oh, sorry. It, I, th- I think the Drake equation is involved, but I guess is is the Fermi paradox the other? The I, th- I think that's just a restatement of the. Yeah, yeah it's the, the Fermi paradox. If there, if if there is uh, intelligent life, why haven't we seen it? Right, right. And so the idea is, well, there's this great filter that uh, prevents life from getting to a certain area. I don't know where it is. Is it is it the fact that maybe like, yeah, simple life is easy, but the multicellular level is near impossible and we won the lottery on that? Is it that most civilizations blow themselves up? Is it that there's a very brief period that we're in now and then you get so far advanced that you, you're not even uh, on the same plane of, you know, you're not even on the same, we don't even know what to look for. It's so advanced type of a thing. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all that's an open question. Yeah, I mean, there, there's, you, you could make a, good, a great case for, uh, the discovering how to how to split the atom uh, and uh, entering the nuclear age is is a form of the great filter that no civilization uh, can be expected to survive long enough past that to actually get off their planet. Yeah, I don't buy uh, that one. I mean, I I, I know <laughs> it, it, it makes for an interesting discussion, but yeah, it's, it's, it's I feel very, like it's uh, too it's like too mired in current events, and it's like on the geologic scale. You, wouldn't we find evidence of that? I guess I guess we wouldn't at this point. But, um, uh, you know, we would eventually find evidence of that. I just feel like it's too, the hypothesis is too wrapped up in, like, basically physicists looking at current events and trying to fit it in there and trying to make a yeah, political it's, statement. It's, it's hard time. not to, uh, yeah. because we have, we have little to draw on in terms of the extinction of, of intelligent species. Uh, again, we've got a uh, kind of a, a, a sample size of one uh, right. issue here. Um, I mean, and you can try and draw some analogies and say, well, you know, uh, nations or, or forms of government have only lasted uh, how long without, you know, undergoing uh, complete collapse or revolution and reformation. Uh, but to extend that metaphor to life itself is a pretty, pretty thin, uh, thin cloth to work with. There. Yeah. No, I happen to think, I don't know, I happen to think there's probably some filter before us and some after us. Uh, you know, and I think before us, meaning like, okay, 
it's like, what if the dinosaurs didn't die out? Would, would there be intelligent life? Maybe not. I don't know. Um, and so probably not. Uh, so it's, it's maybe just the evolution of it is very, very hard. And then also I feel like we are, you know, where's humanity in a thousand years? Uh, not even a million, you know, assuming, assuming we're, we're still around, you know, it's just, it's, it's such a different, it ends up becoming such a different form of biology. Maybe it's not biology uh, at all. Maybe it's just, um, Maybe maybe it's just machines, you know, because yeah, well, so, you know, yeah. civilization as we know it only goes back. What was it about 10,000 years ago that yeah. we started domesticating animals and, and taking up uh, station, uh, um, stationary agri- agriculture isn't the right term for it. But, but basically building cities and, and farms as opposed to being hunters and gatherers. Right. Uh, 10,000 years is like nothing. Uh, it, yeah, it's. I, I don't even. I don't even know how we would extrapolate that, especially when you look at at where we were a hundred years ago compared to where we are technology-wise. Right, right. I mean, it, yeah, it's uh, it is kind of staggering. Um, and the nearest star, Proxima Centauri, I believe, does have an Earth-like planet. That was one of the biggest findings of the last few years. So that's pretty crazy. Only four light years away. Yeah, well, and and I, I don't know if they've explicitly put it in terms of the Great Filter. But but I know that many of the people who talk about uh, establishing off off world colonies, um, you know, going to Mars, building a moon colony, uh, going, you know, to other stars eventually, uh, they're they're looking at this from the perspective of uh, we don't all want all our eggs in one basket because if if right now if if we screw something up on Earth, whether or or even if it's not something in our power, you know, if if, if another uh, dinosaur killer comet comes along. Uh, there, yeah. there is no, I mean, those are so no backup copy. Yeah, uh, that that if if uh, if we've got a, a Mars colony, a Moon colony, uh, and we start, you know, going going beyond uh, out of the solar system, that perhaps that is a way of getting past the Great Filter. So, uh, you know, when when we nuke the Earth or or whatever happens, that's that's not game over. But I feel like it, it, it sounds a little wacko to talk like that. But but that's certainly something going on in the back of the minds right. of people. Uh, like Elon Musk, but if people if if people establish colonies off world over the next hundred two hundred years, then this idea of you know civilizations inevitably blowing themselves up, I, I feel like just becomes so much less likely. I just feel like it's not inevitable. I mean, we've seen it's not inevitable. Even if it happens tomorrow, it's like well, we lasted <laughs> we lasted eighty years with uh, splitting the atoms, so. Could somebody have lasted 300? Why not? Yeah, but it's, it's a probabilities game because, yeah. you know, how to, to, to get to whatever the development is that basically uh, insulates you from the, the downsides, how, how long does that take? And, and what are the odds of getting there without falling victim to the, hmm. to the downsides? But, but yeah, it, it is, that, that becomes very much a, a political uh, current events discussion, whether it's in terms of, uh, you know, nuclear weapons and the geopolitical concerns there, or climate change, uh, and and the uh, the issues surrounding that that you know that they all kind of tie back into that same root. Yeah. All right. So, what are the? Um, I have a bullet point here. What's the practical implications? I'm kind of drawing a blank, but I just think this is these. I I just always like to see these stories, especially when, uh, especially during times when we're so focused on 
the current time and place, and it becomes difficult to uh, expand our minds. But yeah. what, what? So, so I would say in the short term, uh, little or none. Um, I, I would, I would be so excited if. Uh, so, so we're recording on the twenty sixth right now of September. Yeah. Uh, I believe we have a presidential debate coming up on the 29th. So, oh so this episode will release before that. Yes. Uh, my mind would be blown if they talk about this in the presidential debate. <laughs> well, we already but know would, the topics, so I don't think I'm, so. I'm, I'm, Although I'm, knowing, yeah. knowing Trump and Biden, you never know. <laughs> I, I, I think I would feel pretty comfortable in, in you know, betting 100 to 1 odds that it's not going to be a topic of the debate. Let but, me tell you, the Space uh, Force, we're going to send them to <laughs> Venus. It's going to be unbelievable. <laughs> but if we're looking a few years, you know, may, maybe a decade out, uh, I, I, I think, like we said, there there could very likely be a resurgence in probes and other explorator, other you know, robotic and scientific exploration to Venus uh, pursuing this. And, and I think as a lifelong uh, space geek, that, that that would be super cool. Um, yeah. All right. I, I, exactly what form that takes remains to be seen. Yeah. All right. I want to, this is kind of an unrelated science topic, but it's also, you know, related to genetics and, um, and, uh, and, and genealogy, which is, which is another interesting thing. And another thing that can kind of uh, bring us all together with, you know, the realization that uh, the world is often a lot more, you know, multi-ethnic, diverse, complicated than uh, you know, one might assume. And so this is an article in the New York Times, which I think their science section is still good, is it? I mean, sometimes. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I can't keep up. Uh, no, but this is, an, I just, I thought it was interesting that the Vikings, uh, there was a DNA study on the Vikings, and it, uh, it looks like they were not, uh, you know, not just, uh, not just kind of Nordic people. They were almost you know, pan-European people. It includes, well, maybe it's not too surprising that includes you know, Germans and, and Slavs, but also includes Mediterranean people as well. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of, uh, I, and I, I was surprised that this was as surprising as, as at least the New York Times took it to be, um, because we, we do have evidence of, uh, of Viking expeditions uh, perhaps more for trading than for raiding, having made it to the Mediterranean. Um, but it, it was unclear how much that was kind of one-offs versus something that happened fairly frequently. Um, and, and certainly our popular culture conception of Vikings is purely something of, of Scandinavia, uh, your classic blonde hair, blue-eyed, uh, you know, six-foot-six, uh, wears horned helmets and, and carries a sword or an axe. Uh, the 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 horn helmet thing I think has has been somewhat debunked in in popular oh, really? culture, but but uh, the the other stuff uh, that's that's very much what our perception is not necessarily accurate. Um, I mean they they call that a couple of things. One being that uh, there there were probably a lot more farmers uh, than than Viking raiders, uh, or at least farming was a a key part of their lifestyle. Not and, everyone could be a raider. Yeah, well, and and that's certainly you you don't hear uh, epic sagas of of uh, you know. Eric the farmer, uh, it, it doesn't make for for a great tale. No, uh, so so it's it's easy to focus on the more Eric more the podcaster. <laughs> but uh, but but also the that genetically they were more diverse in in you know moving away from that blonde hair blue eyed uh, stereotype, um, and and I, I think interestingly that there was more uh, mixing with other cultures. Um, yeah. 
for one they call out is the I think it's the Sami. Uh, I'm I'm very likely mispronouncing it, but that's that's a group that is is even further north than the classic Vikings, um, famous as as uh, kind of reindeer herders up in Lapland, um, as as well as like you said, uh, you know, folks from from modern day Russia and the other Baltic states and and down into mainland Europe and even the Mediterranean. Uh, people got around back then. It, it wasn't easy. Uh, you know, there weren't airplanes, there weren't cars, but boats got around pretty well and you could still walk over land pretty far. Uh, and, and it's, it's easy to dismiss that people actually did that because it would be un- unbelievable for, uh, anyone other than, you know, a college student on a gap year to hike across Europe these yeah. days. Well, one thing that you learn from, from genealogy, uh, that, um, maybe it's not surprising for a lot of people, but it's something to, to think about is just how connected we are all are. Um, even, you know, if you go back a thousand years, um, most of the, I think it's something like a thousand years, maybe a little more, uh, most of the people, if if I traveled in time a thousand years, uh, in the past, most of the people living there, uh, are going to be either my direct ancestor or, you know, a direct ancestors, um, you know, sibling or cousin. Um, so it is. Uh, even even people who are far outside of you know where I would think my genetic ancestry comes from, just because you know if you go back in time, your number of ancestors increases exponentially until it until yeah. it fills up the the whole of humanity, and so it is. Um, it 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 doesn't mean that they're that you know they're, they're we're not genetically diverse. Um, we are, but we, we all have little bits of, of everything. Um, I'm sure, I mean, look, I do genealogy. Most of my ancestors are you know, Eastern, uh, Eastern European Jews, Ashkenazi Jews, but I am, I'm sure if I go back a thousand years, there are some Vikings in there. <laughs> yeah, I, I've only heard this second or third hand, so I don't know if, if there's uh, uh, research to back this up, the, the genealogy work, but uh, I, I I think someone told me that like all uh, all Ashkenazi Jews are sixth cousins or closer. That really you know, well, that's and, what and, uh, and I would that's what it. Um, uh, that's what who, 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 I do, do. You believe that? Uh, it, it seems plausible. Okay. Well, then wait a minute, though. So um, you have you have some ancestors that are Ashkenazi Jewish, right? So yes. that means that we would be sixth cousins or closer. It seems very probable huh. because sixth cousins is pretty far. Well, hold on. When, when you really map it out, I guess so. I don't know sixth. I have some sixth great grandparents, but not all of them. Uh, yeah. But the, so so, kind of focusing back in on the Scandinavia piece, uh, where the, okay. the genealogy is is particularly fascinating, is Iceland. Yeah. Um, and I, I I don't know if you're too familiar with this, but Iceland is is pretty small. Okay. Um. And and it was only colonized not that long ago, um, you know, during during this Viking age, uh, and the people that colonized it, it was it was a fairly small group. Uh, so not only do they have really good records on this going back like all the way to the original colonizers, um, they know what everybody on the island's relation is to everybody else, and and in the modern world they have uh, a, a, essentially a, a dating app that helps you identify. Uh, when you you match up with somebody, are they too closely related for this to be okay? <laughs> because it's a serious concern in a community that that 
inbreeding is not the right term for it. But wouldn't but you just want to make for, sure that for, they're not for a long time? They had a limited yeah. genetic pool there, uh, and 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 it's it's fascinating from a from a uh, a genealogy. Uh, and, and a research perspective because they have such excellent records going all the way So it's back. not enough to make sure they're not like a, uh, a sibling or cousin? I, I, I think because there's so... It, I think a lot of those family trees uh, kind of converge and divide and converge and divide. So it's, it's not necessarily as, as clean as, as a classic genealogy. Interesting, to, interesting. All right, we have a few more bullet points here. I don't know if we want to get to... Uh, them uh, that it's just reminded you of. I think these are your bullet points. Oh yeah, yeah. So uh, there, there was talk about you know getting down into the Mediterranean and and you know people from from you know dark, darker skinned people having uh, a presence in in this uh, genetic study. Um, and it, it reminded me of the uh, the Varangian guard. I, I'm probably mispronouncing it, um, but which uh, is is kind of a, a neat. Uh, pull out from history that uh, during the Byzantine Empire, the Byzantine Empire, which which is the uh, the Eastern Roman Empire after the fall of the so, Western. So let's Roman see, Empire. when would this be? Like, uh, uh, I I think oh uh, eight se- kind of centered around a thousand eight. I see AD. seven eight eight uh, uh, ninth and tenth century. Yeah. Okay. okay. So. It, long, long after the fall of the Western right. uh, Roman Empire, which was sacked in what, like four seventy six, somewhere around. There. Oh God, um, we but, could go into so we could turn this into a history <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but 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 this 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 guard this was an elite guard unit um, that that specifically served the the emperor of the Byzantine Empire, uh, and it was primarily made up of uh, of Vikings of of uh, of Norse individuals. So they traveled all the way down from from Scandinavia and northern Russia to, uh, you know, modern day Turkey and the Middle East, uh, to, to serve as the elite guards for, for the emperor. Um, and, and kind of a, a, a neat tidbit related to that is that so many, uh, you know, productive, uh, you know, males in their, in, in their prime were running off to the Byzantine empire to, uh, to seek their fortune and, and serve in the guard that they changed the laws in some Scandinavian countries that you could not uh, inherit while you were serving in, uh, I, I think the term was in, in Greece, mm. uh, which, which was how they referred to the, the Byzantine Empire at the time. Sure. Uh, so so it's a Greek empire. You, if, if you were off serving uh, in, in the Varingian Guard and your father passed away, uh, you could not inherit his lands and, and his wealth. Uh, so it was to try and get some of those people to actually to, to stay home. They didn't want to lose their best and their brightest. Yeah. Another interesting find was that old uh, Viking warrior grave was shown to be uh, a woman. I don't know if still. Yeah. So, so this, I, I had thought that this was super recent. Um, and it turns 2017. out they, they'd done some, they, so yeah, so that was when they did the DNA confirmation right. that they, they, there'd been a few years before that. Uh, so, so the, the backstory is that I think it was in like the 1890s, yeah. they discovered this, so this grave site. And and they said, oh, it's it's a Viking warrior. We can tell from all the artifacts, yada yada yada. Uh, and then in I think the early two thousands, they went back and did some further examination of the skeleton and said, hey, this this kind of looks like it might have actually been female. And there was a lot of controversy because uh, Viking female Viking warriors are a myth. It's it's all just sagas and and you know modern 
modern politics. Uh, but in 2017, they went, they were able to successfully extract uh, enough DNA to definitively confirm uh, that this person in this grave was in fact a woman. Uh, now, there's still some controversy over uh, do all the artifacts they found buried with with this woman actually confirm she was a warrior? Uh, and and there's she was a there's warrior. A theory that not just a warrior, but in fact uh, a, a a warrior and a strategist. Mm. Um, so there's some controversy about that, but uh, there there are several uh, leading scholars in the field who who say that this this does confirm the existence of of uh, not just female warriors, but but female leaders among a warrior uh, the warrior group. So that that's kind of cool that you know it's 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 not just a, a mythology that that there's real instances. That is that. really fascinating. I feel like to wrap it all up today, I feel like there's kind of a there's kind of a theme here where you know you look at the world and you look at the discoveries that are being made and it just seems like the the world often surprises us and it's there's there's something uplifting about the stories that we have today where it's it's always um you know science has a way of uh of kind of fighting against our human narrow-minded nature and sort of saying, no, uh, actually, uh, the world is a really interesting, crazy, diverse place. And I don't know, th- these stories are, are making me uh, happier this year than any of the, of the other stories. <laughs> it's it's uh, it's a good reminder to uh, really think twice before you put your your probability of something being at zero because that's true too. Uh, reality has a way of surprising yes. you that that it may be extremely unlikely, but is it really zero? So and and that may serve that 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 may yet you know serve us well in our daily lives if if we remember that that the unexpected can still happen. Yeah. All right, so. Um, we haven't talked about what we want to do next week. I don't know if you have any thoughts, um, whether we can return to, we could return to some tech topics, see what, uh, see what's happened in the machine learning world. We could, uh, I still have more threads to pull on topology. I want to talk about the different shapes of spaces. Again, I, I need to hear some feedback from the audience to, to get that, (laughs) or we can, uh, we can kind of do another, uh, news report, just, um, just more, more, more general news. Who knows? We could be doing anything next week. I have some pretty cool guests for October, but uh, I'm, I'm taking a little break this month and uh, we're just going to hang out. So do you have any uh, preferences, Aaron? Uh, I, I don't know what the future holds, so uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll have to give some thought yeah, on that. We'll, we'll see what happens for the rest of the year. All right. Uh, that, was, uh, that was a lot of fun. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power.